0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. but one of the things I notice as somebody who basically builds technology for the humanities, essentially for humanities research, the thing I notice more and more is that I think we need more humanities understanding in the way we interact with technology. So this is kind of a part of my desire to try and find ways of embedding humanities into how we te- understand technology and also understanding, embedding an understanding of technology into the things we know about humanities. So, and I don't think you can really say that technology is a source of cultural trauma in and of itself. And in trying to understand the role of technology, a lot of the things we were talking about—you know, the, the issues of memorialization, the issues of, of trauma, and the like—the image that always comes back to me is that technology is a of con So you may know the origins of this. And it's—it's it's interesting to kind of go back. So I kind of pulled, you know, pulled 1991 off my shelf uh, as I was preparing this. Um, And this is Jerry Mander talking about television, actually. It's a book about television, how bad television was. And he was imagining the future, what was going to happen with these computer thingies, which we had by then, but they weren't nearly as widespread as they are now, Think to 1991. Computers like television are far more valuable and helpful to the military, to multinational corporations, to international banking, to governments, and to institutions of surveillance and control than they will ever be to you and me. And I think we've seen a lot since 1991 that has borne the South. But technology has done a lot of good for us as well. Bringing people together, getting access to certain kinds of services. There's been a lot of good and a lot of bad. And this is where I come to this idea of the pharmacon. The, that, the, the substance that, in some amount, is helpful and heals the body. And yet, in a different amount, can be harmful and can kill the body. And thinking about Pharmacon, the earliest technology I could find that was defined as a pharmacon. You know, let's go back to Plato. We're humans he here. You know, we can have thousands of years of history. Um, this is our playground, right? So, interestingly enough, Plato was talking back in 400 BC about the fact that writing was, to his idea, a technology and a pharmacon. That writing would give us things and give us capacities and ways to expand knowledge but would also extric- ex- constrain our access to knowledge because it would release us from the kind of oral histories, the oral traditions that were present in his time. Now, I don't think every kind of technology is a harm. I, I'm less concerned about rubas and toasters than I am about Facebook and Google, okay? So let's just put that out there. Uh, although I do like to watch cats ride Roombas. Um, so we have to think about some of these technologies are focused specifically on how we create knowledge, how we know our world, how we form our identities, how we share cultural assets, how we form relationships, how we perceive the world, how power is expressed. And I thought it was really interesting, the discussion this morning about the videos from the perspective of the purpose the perpetrators have access to technology. There was a power difference there, and it was mediated through the technology, and the technology allowed the capture of the, of the perceptions, and that also allowed the that perspective to be perpetuated. So it was really interesting, and even there you can see different technology, and I'm sure many of you will have technologies that are implicit in the work you do, and I'm hoping we can get to that in the discussion. So, and interesting as well is to think about, so we talk about, um, when we talk about fake news, we talk about disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is something somebody purposely puts out there in the hopes that you will believe it. Misinformation is when somebody picks something up and spreads it up. And when I say it that way, you must be thinking, God, these aren't new processes, because we've had propaganda for a long time. And that's really you know, a disinformation campaign going back. So what's different? Well, there's certain things that we're used to being, being able to see. There's certain things that we're used to being able to judge. And I'll come back to this later. Um, and there's certain, uh, certain things about the hackability of the human animal. Well, if you read the Harari article, you read about this sort of hackability. Um, so is it addictive? Um, polarization of filter models, bubbles. Hacking with trust signals. All of these things make the technologies that we deal with now a little bit different from writing, television, and also from a room by the toaster. And then there's also the way in which business models are implicit in a lot of this. Um, so there's a lot of pressure for single player dominance in some of these areas. Um, and there is the consumer choice versus the citizen choice. Things that you might choose as a consumer for yourself may not be the same things that you would want people to choose as your fellow citizens of a country, of a region, of any kind of group like that. So there's that interesting tension. And the way, and this is one of the big criticisms I have of human-computer interactions in science, that it tends to really narrow in on that individual experience. Um, and finally, the idea of, you know, how there is sort of an easy incentive towards exploitation in a lack of regulation, because a lot of these companies' business models came out of nowhere uh, in terms of what we expected before. So that's what's different. And then you have this idea of, ah, that's interesting. Okay, so we have we have something interesting going on with the technology here. Very pretty. Um, the idea of human beings and their society as, as being hackable. And I'm really drawing from our pain here. Um, and ideas of things that we thought were true, that we're now realizing aren't as true as we thought they were. And again, the main article, the main argument of that article is about how free will isn't free. Our choices are so determined that we are actually um, very, very open to this kind of abuse uh, within these systems. Um, The fact that citizens and consumers can choose differently. Again, it's another one of these aspects. Um, The fact that there are things that we may need that we wouldn't choose. Again, the whole idea of your information diet. Um, The Sunstein article goes into this, uh, but there's other really interesting um, ideas out there uh, about how we could potentially rebalance what people see, you know, because we're actually choosing things. We're kind of creating a world around ourselves that fits us, and it's what we want, but it becomes a diet that's made entirely of ice cream, because that's what we want, right? So we ought to eat broccoli anymore. But to be a citizen, you need to eat the broccoli. So how do we get people to eat the information broccoli? Um, the fact that identities are relational. Again, you think of identity as being me. But actually, again, just like free will and free choice, it's sort of something that we create with a certain moralities that are social. Um, and the last two things I wanted to talk about, um, I have no idea what those last two things are. Yeah, and that's actually, it's funny, it's, it's just a repetition of the other slide. It's a weird artifact that came in. Um, the fact that privacy is a public good, and that carrots can become sticks. And again, what I'm just going to throw out certain examples. You may know the examples. well. you may not know them, but we're happy to come back to them in questions. So the questions about um, whether or not, you know, what's the balance between the public and the private. You may have heard of the company Strava. How many of you know about Strava, the Strava case? So um, it was one of these Fitbit type things. And lots of, you know, U.S. military uh, guys really like longing all of their fitness. And all of a sudden, somebody looked at the heat map, because then it was social, and you could share all your reps. Like Chuck Norris, wait, the record did I get it? Because how many reps does Chuck Norris do? He does all the reps. Okay, I was told I had to say that. Sorry, I, I, I have no idea why I had to make that joke, but I think it was important. Cool. So So, um, they were sharing all this kind of fitness information. long in the U.S. military. Somebody looked at the heat map of all this shared information and said, why is there a hot spot there? You know, in the middle of Africa. Oh, it's a U.S. military base. Whoops. So the whole idea that things get revealed. Additionally, with the way people are sharing their DNA. Uh, so yes, I have my DNA, and I'm from you know 47 different places or something like that. But suddenly, because that becomes public, it actually is getting used to solve cold murder cases. And again, there's a lot of tension and a lot of the talk about this. Is, you know, if you're not doing anything wrong. also look at how carrots can become sticks. And I heard this, this advertisement on radio recently that just chilled me, because they were saying, oh, are you an 18-year-old driver? You can get cheap car insurance with telematics insurance. Basically saying, we put a black box in your car. And we know everything you do, and that's fine, because it reduces your insurance. But then later, what happens when that actually becomes not something that you can choose, but something that you actually have to opt out of, then suddenly, to have affordable insurance, you're going to have insurance, you're going to have to actually allow yourself to be observed. So then that surveillance aspect, and that's where we start to have technologies that can encroach very easily on democratic principles. So I try to find a list of things that democracy needs um, to try and structure the, the last bit of, of this presentation. How are we doing for time? How through. Perfect. Um, and I thought this was a, a useful list to start Again, there's lots of different lists, so just take this for what it is, one guy's list, um, but specifically done in the, in the context of how technology is a disruptor. Um, an active and informed citizenry, trust and authority, shared culture, free elections, stakeholder equality, competitive economy, and civic freedom. So for seven things, I think that's a relatively easy list to get around. And if you read the Guardian article about um, Cambridge Analytica, or if you know the story of Cambridge Analytica, and the way in which there is just a number of forces coming in, you can see how that fourth one, pre-election, is kind of standing under some threat. But what I want to talk about is give specific examples of the first three of these, and how you can see how technology, so these these pharmaca that we are creating, that are in some ways fantastic, you know, I can keep up with students I had 20 years ago, and I know what they're doing, and that's a wonderful thing. It really is. But many of the same technologies that allow me to do that are threatening other things. So I'm going to look specifically at these three and dig a little bit into why the technological affordances or restrictions are sort behind some of the problems. So. Let's start with the active and informed citizens. And again, each one of these have tried to ground in a specific case, which you may or may not know, and we can talk about them more. So, Facebook in Myanmar, awareness, relevant awareness? Wow, okay, so as you may know, there's a major genocide going on in Myanmar. Um, and Facebook has a huge burden of responsibility to play, uh, to, to bear for what happened there, why? So, at the time when they were moving in, now mind you, the mentality of these companies is really interesting. Does anybody know what the original logo of Facebook was? No? Move fast and break things. Oh, okay. just like that. Yeah, and they do still say that when you go to the Facebook offices, their guess why my password is move fast. And I'm like, eh. no, <laughs> if I'm not gonna use your network if that's the password. Um, so if you think about it, you know the subcultures of these companies. You know these are young, male, white. So there is, you know, and there is a kind of a set of values. There is a set of linguistic tics. Um, and again, I can talk much more about this, but leave that. Just to take that in trust for now. So in Myanmar, there was this fast expansion of mobile phone markets. So there was a deregulation, and then suddenly everybody was getting mobile phones. And Facebook thought, oh. This is our chance to put Facebook on every mobile phone and we'll give people free access to data. So that'll be great. Suddenly Facebook became the dominant platform for communication in this rapidly opening market. But, okay, <coughs> this is where we get into certain things about how um, machine translation works. So usually with machine translation, there are there are different technologies for machine translation. Usually what you have is you have paired corpora. So you have This text in English, this text in German. And it works pretty well for English and German because there's lots of English and German out there. You can guess that there's a lot less Burmese than there is English and German. So the algorithms weren't gonna work the way they expected it to. And they didn't think, oh, well, we're just this multinational company. We can just go into any country you want because Facebook is neutral. They didn't realize they actually needed people on the ground to actually monitor what was coming through their platform for this. And a lot of hate speech got missed, and a lot of of the, the, the serious kind of negativity that got riled up there happened on their platform because of this naivete. And again, it's 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 you know it's it's the business model coming in, it's the underlying cultural traumas being there, and then you have this sort of gap of data. And you know, when I talk about when I talk negatively about Facebook and about the, the kind of the culture in these companies. I think of things like this, which is, you know, founder Mark Zuckerberg talking about how throughout human history language has been a barrier to communication. Now I completely take the fact that, you know, again, I'm a native speaker in England. I am blessed when I go from place to place in Europe and I talk way too fast, and I have a cup of coffee, and nobody understands what I say. I can never actually truly understand the the complexities of the arguments that my colleagues are coming to me with until I learn their language. So, but I actually just had it wrong because language has been a barrier to communication and it's amazing we get to live in a time when technology can change that. So essentially confusing the rough instrument of machine translation with the development of intimacy, the development of relationships. Again, remember this whole idea that Relationships, knowledge creation, identities—these are all part of that substrate um, that I would see as necessary for a stable democracy, but also disrupted by these technologies that are, you know, can be used one way or the other. And just to give you another example, um, so it's not a very good picture, but you'll hear people talk about technology and talk about all oh, these deep neural networks. The parrot version of machine translation—that's something. Now that we have the deep neural networks. This is an example of a deep neural network that was trained for Latvian. Latvian is not a language where you have a lot of trained data. So you can't just set your algorithm free and say, go learn how to speak Latvian. Go learn how to translate between Latvian and English. And they fed it a number of source texts and asked them to translate all of those lines on the left-hand side. So characteristic specialties of Latvian cuisine our bacon pies our refreshing cold sour cream soup. Very simple. Obviously, they were taking these from the the tourism books. And they put them all through, and that was the target, that was the translation that came out for all of those sentences, which you can see are very different. Which means, fast wireless internet is available free at charging guest rooms. Why did this happen? Because somewhere in the way in which the algorithm parsed the training data, it saw that there was a connection between these ideas, and it came to the conclusion that they were all the same. So, you know. All models lie, some models are useful, useful. This one was not. So this is where we have to worry about this idea of, of where, how technologies are kind of disrupting um, these signals. And there's another one kind of going on to this whole question of models being useful and models being, being, being lied. Um, the second issue is this whole idea of trust and authority. So Compass, that's another company and system name. anybody?
1: Anybody? Okay,
0: Compass. Compass is a really interesting one because um, it was developed to assist um, in the the determination of the likelihood of recidivism of people after an initial crime. Okay? Yeah, so you know the story, you may not know the name. And what happened was, and this was, again, meant to be used As a way of allocating resources. So, saying, okay, who can we actually believe will be the best investment for rehabilitation, the best investment for um, some kind of of public funding? What happened, however, is the results of this system, again, which are based on a model. And based on a model which is sort of drawing from all of these big data um, and creating this kind of vision of the world that's that's based on proxies. So it's kind of saying, well, people who do this kind of do this. Sort of like, remember Google flu trends? That might be something you may or may not remember. But they said, oh, look, if you do a Google search for, you know, if you look at the Google trends for people searching for tissues and chicken soup, you can detect better than, than the Center for Disease Control where the flu outbreaks are going to be.
1: Which there was a blip
0: in which it worked, and then they realized, no, this doesn't work at all.
1: But there's this idea that these sort
0: of proxies can tell us something. So you have these systems that are based on proxies, based on these algorithmic models, but also not transparent So you couldn't see, you weren't allowed to see where the decision would be made. And the secret is, the dirty secret is, as the technology gets more complicated, as we get more and more into these areas of deep learning, the computer scientists don't actually know exactly how the model works either, because the whole point of the model is that the algorithm trains itself and finds patterns that are more subtle. Than you have if you had a paired language corpora. So the models don't necessarily scale and they inevitably incorporate bias. So um, there's some very, very good work done um, that looked at bias and algorithms. People always talk about that, but what, what um, this work did that was really interesting is she was saying, okay, well, you actually know, start to level the bias team. You know, if you have software that's built by all white men, it's probably going to reflect the bias. Then you look at the bias of the training data. My computer scientist friends will always say, well, we can just use Wikipedia because there's lots of data there. It's easily accessible. We can just get it. We just want it. But Wikipedia also is biased because Wikipedia was largely built by a certain kind of person. So you have the biased teams, you have the biased data, and then you will have potential biases that people maybe aren't necessarily incorporated in but aren't necessarily leaving out. So you have this kind of layer cake of bias. Is going into systems like this. And then decisions about people's lives, decisions about whether people get parole. So, what happened was the use of Compass Marley migrated from social services into the courts. And that's when people got worried. And everybody said, oh, well, you know, there was that study of the judges who were more lenient after lunch than before lunch. And yes, human beings are fallible. But just because we don't see how that works doesn't mean it's not equally fallible and it can't change. And we can't change it because we don't know how it works. And that's one of the great things for the European on this, um, is that under the general data protection rules, one of the things we now have a right to in Europe is to say the decisions have been made about us using an algorithm, we have a right to understand how that algorithm works. So, you know, again, this is where the question of regulation will come up in a second. And then, you know, trust and authority, I was also thinking, this is what I added over lunch, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to put that in. You know, there's also ways in which our trust and authority of our own senses is being walked. Um, and I don't know how many of you have do you recognize the this the video on the on this side? I don't know right now. Yeah, this is the big deep fake where they match together with Steve Buscemi and who's the actress? I can't remember the actress's name in this one, but they, they they merge together these two videos, or a video of one person and the facial features of another, in a way that actually is frighteningly believable. And this is where we're getting this whole idea of the deep fake or fake, where there's just a bit of editing going on, and you know this is this is scary stuff. We live in scary times. However, we have to remember when the Lumiere brothers first you know put in a cinema the vision of a train coming, people were frightened to death and you know, ran away because they didn't realize it was just. So there's a visual literacy, there's a technological literacy that goes beyond how the right computer code that we need to sort of be working on. Um, so the last example is about shared culture. I'll just say quickly, you know, we think that everything is digitized, it's not. And a lot of what's not digitized is cultural heritage, and a lot of that is very unevenly digitized. So if part of what we need to understand who we are, part of what we need to actually um, build and maintain a democracy has to do with shared culture, we need to make sure that we have you know, more than, than you know, Thirteen percent of our archives accessible because again the theory is that things in the um, in the 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 analog world are getting lost. And bear in mind, you know, there's this Internet Archive, which is great, collects everything, right? No, actually, it samples and it will sample different things at different times. It'll keep these kind of composite pages, so you can get things like this this camel of a page, where you have things that are coming from different times on the page that is captured as the version of record in the internet archive. So we can't just count on the fact that things being in the digital realm is going to mean that they're going to be there, and that we're going to be able to find them, and that we need to question what happened on that day, even whether it was important to understand who we are, what's happening in our society. That isn't the solution that's not going to help us. So, I leave you with this kind of idea from Heckney uh, and You know, the whole idea that a lot of human social action is now being driven by engineering. So it's actually, it's not people creating societies, it's engineered products. You know, it's not just the built environment, it's the built knowledge environment that is actually starting to, to implicate a lot of things. But I also like the, the quote from Murray, well philosophers are very patient people, they can argue about something inclusively for 3,000 years engineers are far less patient, and politicians are the least patient of all. So I think actually maybe thinking about how we can better transfer knowledge, maybe, between the arts and humanities and the politicians and the engineers to get them to slow down, to get them to embrace the complexity that we always hear, it's too complex. Well, you know what? I think anyone in this room knows that the complexity is where, where any kind of insight lies and any kind of understanding. So um, the last thing I'll leave you with is maybe a couple of questions about how we minimize the negative aspects of technology. I'd love to hear in the discussion about how technology, you would think, heightens, interacts with these sort of problematic scripts of national histories or, or, or community histories, whether you call them cultural trauma or not. And also, if you have, in your own research, examples of technologies where you can see how that kind of pharma can like you know, whether it's present day or whether it's in the past, because I think we can learn a lot about what we do with present day technologies by looking in the past. So I'll leave those up there as sort of little instigators for you to start the discussion, and maybe we can take it from there.